Hello, and welcome to Bold Conversations, a five-part series on the Immune Deficiency Foundation podcast aimed at advancing knowledge and understanding of health equity. Welcome to another episode of Bold Conversations. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Rochester, the Medical Advisor for Health Equity for the Immune Deficiency Foundation. And I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to today's guest. Today, I'm gonna be speaking with Dr. Vivian Hernandez Trujillo. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo is a specialist in allergy and immunology. She has board certifications in both pediatrics, my favorite specialty, and allergy and immunology, and has 19 years of experience caring for the most delicate patients. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo received her medical degree from Albany Medical College in New York and completed her pediatric residency at Miami Children's Hospital. She completed her fellowship in allergy and immunology at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo is a clinical professor at Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, located in Miami, Florida, where she serves as the medical director for the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nicholas Children's Hospital and the program director of the Allergy Immunology Fellowship Training Program. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo is interested in education regarding pediatric allergic disease with particular interest in the topics of food allergy and anaphylaxis and primary immunodeficiency disorders. She lectures nationally and internationally on a variety of topics related to allergy and immunology. She has served on numerous committees for national organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics Section of Allergy and Immunology, as well as the Immune Deficiency Foundation's Medical Advisory Board. Welcome, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. It's great to have you. How exciting to be here and continue our conversation, Dr. Rochester. Absolutely. So, you know, this podcast series, we talk a lot about health equity and health disparities, health inequities. And today with your expertise, I really want to focus specifically on health inequities uh, within the field of primary immunodeficiency and among patients with primary immunodeficiency. And I know that that's an area of interest for you as well. So I'd love to start out by you just providing maybe a couple of examples of health disparities, uh, maybe among patients that you've treated or perhaps um, things that you've conducted research about, but just drawing from your knowledge and expertise in this area. Perfect. So I think the first thing is just to review what is a healthcare disparity, right? Because a lot, we use this word, this terminology a lot. Um, a disparity in healthcare is when there's a difference in the medical care that is not due to differing clinical needs. So the patients have the same clinical needs or the same patient preference or the same appropriateness of the intervention. However, it's not provided the same, the same opportunity is not provided to that patient, right? So disparities in healthcare um, for both racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S. are longstanding, they're well-documented, and they're complex, both historic and contemporary. And that's actually the AMA's um, definition of the disparity. Uh, I think we've all known, and we've we've like talked about this before, we know that these have existed for a long time. And recently, I was actually, um, I had the opportunity to speak in Colombia about, it was last week, two weeks ago, um, about healthcare disparities in allergy and immunology. And one of the things that 
I talked about, it was a global health conference and I was energized because, you know, there was a room full of people who want to change the fact that, you know, disparities exist, not just in the United States, but throughout all of Latin America and South America. Um, One of the things that happened with the pandemic is as much as there was a lot of negatives, some positives came out, right? Because we were able to clearly identify, there was no question that ethnic minorities and racial minorities did, they were more impacted and did not receive the same care. So I think number one, we need to keep that in mind. And I'm gonna give you an example of a particular disparity that happened during that time. Um, Living in South Florida, you would think that if you speak Spanish, you'd be able to find someone who can speak to you in the same language. This was on the West coast of Florida. Uh, And unfortunately, I received a call from a family who I've known for many years, having taken care of one of their children, and their other child was intubated in ICU and dying of COVID. And they were desperate, but I have a very, you know, we have a good relationship. And they reached out to me and I said, let me see what I can do. So essentially, they weren't able to communicate with someone in Spanish. They had no idea what was happening. And I was in a position where I could help them. So I I said, give them the consent. And and I was able to kind of be the mediator and just translate and explain to them, this is what's happening. um, And kind of walk through some scary days. And thankfully, she was able to pull through. But that is one example of, you know, I would certainly never expect that to happen here. But sometimes and you know, um, Dr. Rochester, sometimes we're in positions that we're able to help people for whatever the reason. They thought of me, they called me, I was so happy. And I told them, I'm so happy that I was able to help because at the end of the day, sometimes something like that, um, really it, it was huge. And not just for them, but for me as well, right? So it's a reminder when we were all going through a difficult time during the pandemic, listen, we're here to help. And it really gave me continued hope that we're all here for each other because at the end of the day that's what it that's what it's about um that's one example in other situations where I've been there just haven't been the amount of healthcare providers or physicians to provide the care in a way that is understandable to the patient and whether it's in Spanish or in another language remembering that this is important to the patient because if they're not able to communicate, number one, you're not going to get the right type of history and you need the history to make the diagnosis, but it's it's a failure for all of us. Um, I think those are the two main disparity like examples that I, I wanted to give. The, the one that happened, you know, it, during the pandemic, it has will never leave me like that. I will carry for the rest of my career because it's just a reminder. Number one, we cannot ever, assume you can't assume that you're going to walk into a hospital and be able to communicate in the same language no matter where you live um and it really doesn't even matter about the primary language sometimes it's the level at which someone is speaking to you that you don't understand so it might as well be a different language and i think that's also important because disparities also occur when we make assumptions that someone has to understand the way that i'm explaining it that is not true we're here to provide care for our patients and providing health care is taking that extra few seconds to make sure. One of the things that I like to ask families before I leave every room is, do you have any questions? Is everything we talked about clear? And that's the reason for it, because I wanna make sure that what I said was heard and not what I think heard. Sometimes I'll even tell them, what did you hear me say? Because I need to make sure, you know, we're talking about complex diagnoses, complex treatments at times. 
And having all the information is everything for these families. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is like a wonderful introduction. First, thank you for leveling the, the field and kind of starting with that, that centering definition. And I love that you focused on healthcare disparities because I've shared this before um, in, in my medical training some years ago, um, we knew about health disparities. I don't know that the term was necessarily being used in that manner, but at that time, everything was focused on outcomes. And there were these assumptions that black patients or Hispanic Latino patients or poor patients, all these things, they have worse outcomes because of something that they're doing or something that they're not doing. And it was years later when the Institute of Medicine uh, produced their landmark study. And, and we really started to understand that many of these health disparities uh, are actually due to differences in care. So I really appreciate that you started with that and that you stated these are uh, individuals for whom the care is really prescribed. I mean, often these are guideline directed therapies. Like these are what we may say no brainers um, in, in the field of medicine. And yet certain patients uh, with certain identities don't receive that care. And, and really, if we're being honest, it's rooted in bias, it's rooted in stereotypes, and it's rooted in, in, in racism. And so I just appreciate you starting with that. And I also want to point out, you know, I'm thankful that you were there for that patient and family. And I'm also appalled because patients and families have a legal right to have an interpreter, you know, like that is a legal responsibility that all hospitals and healthcare facilities should provide. And you and I both know that that doesn't always happen. And, and so it's just horrifying to think about what the outcome may have been had they not called you and had you not been able to step in. And as a professional health advocate, like that's what I do. Um, and I love that you also mentioned the language because often the clients that I'm helping, they, they English is their primary language, you know, and they're, they're born in the United States, but that medical lingo that we use can be so confusing. And I forgot the exact statistics, but in terms of health literacy, someone's ability to understand the information that's presented and then use that information to make um, health decisions, it's something like, I don't know, it's under 40, 50, 40% of Americans are, are deemed health literate. And so we, you, you're right, we can't assume that our patients are understanding. And so I love that you asked that question. Um, and it sounds like you use a little bit of teach back where you say, okay, tell me what I told you, like tell, explain to me in your words what I said. So I think all of those things are really important. Another thing I wanted to talk with you about is I know that there's some limited research in this area, but there are a couple of published papers with regard to primary immunodeficiency and disparities, specifically among uh, Black and, and Hispanic patients with regard to, um, you know, we know the diagnosis is already extremely long, but for individuals who are racial ethnic minorities or perhaps living in rural areas or other, other situations where they may not have access or easy access to care, those diagnostic delays are exacerbated. And then there's even a study that shows that for patients um, with certain immunodeficiency disorders, um, particularly primary antibody deficiency, that they don't receive, patients of color, let me add that, with primary immunodeficiency, are not always receiving the guideline directed therapy, and then of course have more uh, complications. So I'd love for you to weigh in on that. Have you seen this in your practice or, or and, and if not, 
If so, how has that shown up in your practice? And if not, what are your thoughts about these, these health and healthcare disparities specifically within PI? I think, so one of the things that I talk a lot to my patients about is, number one, we educate about the primary disease, but we also, the reason that we lack the research in, and this goes back to the mistrust, the fear for immigration status, um, and just not knowing, like just not having the, the education and the information. We need to, to, we as a Latino population, we need to get involved in research. So when the research opportunities are there, we do need to take part. And we know that that has been very low, which is why when we talk about studies, right? So Dr. Charlotte Cunningham Runnels almost 20 years ago now, used um, and, and using, you know, specific complications from primary immune deficiency, but the patients were not diagnosed. Patients of color were the highest group there. And I'm not surprised about that. Um, you know, they also were more likely to have Medicaid. They were more likely to be hospitalized with these complications, but not have the primary diagnosis of, of the immunodeficiency. Um, the other example is if someone who is Hispanic or um, African-American needs a stem cell transplant, a bone marrow transplant, we just don't have the same pool, right? We don't have the same pool of donors. And that's something that is also very important to address. So one of the things that I like to, to say, especially if I'm speaking to a group is, you know, if you fall in, in one of those groups, you know, please remember that we can be the lifeline. We can save someone's life truly, not only as their uh, physician, we can actually save them by being a donor. Um, so these are just some of the reasons why the information is not, you know, is not there. It's not published, but uh, there's no doubt that patients, um, there are many patients who are undiagnosed, as you said at the beginning, but more importantly, our communities need to, to have improved care. I can't give a specific example where I truly felt that a Latino patient maybe did not receive, did they not receive the correct diagnosis or were they not diagnosed? Yes, but I would say that happens across the board for primary immunodeficiency. Um, but I can't say that I've had a, a patient where I honestly felt that it was specifically due to either discrimination or racism. I think as clinicians, we have a responsibility, right? So being the advocate, and, and I love to speak to pediatricians, and I tell them, look, you're our first line. If you don't think about it, then we'll never be able to make the diagnosis. So they're the most important piece, really, um, in identifying the these patients, especially in the pediatric world. Absolutely. I appreciate that. You um, you mentioned information and, and mistrust, and you know we know that there's a lot of work to be done. And really, I feel like that burden belongs on us, you know, healthcare providers, hospitals, health systems, um, in order to regain the trust that was that was broken, honestly. But with regard to information, we know that information is power, and certainly if there are language barriers, that's a significant. Um, issue in terms of people being able to even get the information, patients and families. And so I know that you've done some phenomenal work with the Immune Deficiency Foundation in terms of translating information and eliminating language barriers, specifically for Spanish-speaking patients and families. So I'd love for you to share with the audience um, about your work in that regard. 
So I'm very excited that I was able to receive um, one of the grants for the white paper challenge, and I'm still in the process of pulling all that information together. Uh, and basically over a year, I was able to address, and it was really grassroots here in Miami, um, four different types of fairs that I attended where it was a primarily Latino population uh, in attendance. And, and I think one that I would really like to talk about was, and, and I love this particular fair, it was not just Latinos, this was a mix of, of everyone, but we had, you know, I worked with the, some of the medical students from Florida International, uh, the School of Medicine, and I was so excited because they were very excited to share information about primary immunodeficiency. We went with our books in Spanish. We shared information just about, you know, how do you take care of yourself? How do you stay healthy? How, and in this moment of, we were in the middle of flu, unfortunately, we were in the middle of flu, COVID, there was RSV already. Um, cause that's always in Miami. It was a, a great opportunity to talk to even not only the parents, but the children mm. in Spanish and tell them, you know, what are the important factors for immune system? Well, one of the things that I talked about, and I was excited at this particular fair, they had a truck from feeding South Florida. They were giving out food because wow. remember that sleep is important and you're not going to have proper sleep. If there's too many people in one room or two rooms and there's no beds. So that's number one. Number two, you need to eat a healthy diet. If you can't afford healthy food, it is very expensive. If it was expensive two, three years ago, it's so expensive. Feeding South Florida, I was so excited. They were, they were, you know, helping the families with that. Um, talking about the need for exercise because that's good for your overall health, but it is good for your immune system. And then keeping in mind that stress does affect the immune system. And if you live in a situation where, and, and I've had patients unfortunately say to me, you know, there's six of us sleeping in two beds and I'm sleeping on the floor and I don't really have a, I don't have a mattress. So trying to connect those families with social work or someone or organizations that can help the programs like WIC, you know, women, women and children early on in life, they can provide healthy food for for infants and those are the types of things that we can do um so in addition to that my second year fellow who graduated um dr steph Lida, and i want to really commend her for her work did um really a project a quality improvement project looking specifically at latinos and their understanding of primary immunodeficiency and we found some interesting things number one um so the 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 initial survey, of course, was very low um, as far as their understanding about their treatment options. But after the first cycle, given some, some information, and then more importantly, after the second cycle, they were asked, patients and families were asked, what, you know, how would you like information? Because the written form of information actually is not what they preferred. They actually preferred it in a video. And the other preference they had was for the information to be text instead of email. So for the next cycle, the information was in a video form and it was texted. And I will tell you that it was amazing to see how the numbers came close to 100. And in some, and in some cases, it was 100% for their understanding of, you know, understanding better their disease, uh, what are the treatment options. It was actually um, very enlightening. So again, Keeping in mind that we can't make assumptions, right? You can say, well, they why would they want it in video? Why would they want it in text? 
because we live in this day and age and we need to change with the times. And I think the last piece, which I'm still working on to complete the project is I'm creating videos in Spanish specifically about different, and they're going to be short clips because that's also important, right? Not making it too long about primary immune deficiencies for our Spanish speaking population that the immune deficiency will be able to share with everyone. So it's, you know, this is a little piece. And I always say, this is like the tip of the iceberg. This is just one grain of rice, but every grain of rice as it continues to grow is how we're going to make a difference. And I think I'm very hopeful that that information um, is going to help many, many families. No question. It's going to help so many families. I am literally like bouncing in my seat as I'm listening to you and, and just thank you. I mean, I really do want to pause and thank you and your fellow and anyone else who played a role in this amazing, amazing project. I mean, what a great use of the, the funds from the, from the white paper challenge I want to highlight a couple of things that you said. You talked about the living conditions and like stress and eating and how that all plays in. And we've talked in previous episodes here on Bold Conversations about the social determinants or social drivers of health. So I just want to reiterate that for the audience. And it goes back to kind of where we started when this idea of not blaming the individuals who for various reasons have not been given the opportunities to achieve their best health, which is literally what health equity is. And understanding that when you have living conditions such as the ones you described, you have very limited ability to, to achieve your best health. And it's not your fault, you know? And so it's like, what can we do as healthcare providers, as healthcare organizations, as patient advocacy organizations to ensure that everyone has an equal opportunity to achieve their best health? And that may be, resources, like you said, you know, providing food or providing vouchers or even making um, patients and families aware of the resources that sometimes are in their backyards, but they don't understand that. And the other thing that really, really lights me up about what you said is this idea of co-designing this project and you all asking the participants, how do you want this information? And the way that that information that you received completely shifted and pivoted the project, and then allowed you to get to almost 100%. In healthcare, what I see more often is that we come up with these bright, in quotes, bright ideas sitting at our boardroom tables, and then we take these ideas, maybe, if, we, if we're going to do any community engagement at all, we've been at our in our Ivy League towers, at our boardroom tables, and then we come up with these ideas, and then we take them to the community and say, hey, community, this is what we're going to do. You like it, right? You like it, right? Let's do it as opposed to you all pausing and saying, how would you like this to be done? And then incorporating that feedback. So I'm so excited. And I, I really hope that more researchers, more physicians, more healthcare organizations will take that stance as we truly engage with our patients and families and communities in a way that informs our work from the beginning. So thank you again, just thank you for that. As we begin to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about workforce diversity. There have been, unfortunately, well, I guess it's fortunate, but it makes me sad, but there have been a lot of studies with regard to um, concordance, racial concordance, uh, concordance of ethnicity, language, that basically show that um, patients of color um, tend to have better health outcomes, they receive better care when they are cared for by someone who looks like them, by someone who shares their language, their culture, and so when we take that information and we pair it with the knowledge that 
Only 5% of practicing physicians uh, identify as Black or African-American. Only 7 to 9% of practicing physicians identify as Hispanic or Latino. And understanding that those percentages um, pale in comparison to our representation in, in, the, in the United States as a whole. So we have a lot of work to do to make the healthcare workforce look like the communities that we serve. Having said that, what are your thoughts about workforce diversity? And what are some of maybe your own experiences as a Latina physician, um, maybe some challenges that you've had to overcome? Um, I just love your insight on that. So the reason why diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts are so important is exactly what you said. So as far as, you know, physicians in the U.S., somewhere between 7 and 9%, but really the population is almost 18%, right? So we're double, the population's double to, to the percentage of physicians that are actually providing the care. Um, I really think so number one, we have to correct some flawed thinking, right? And and I'm sure that you've also heard this. So the thinking is, well, um, why should we accept candidates that may not be as qualified? You're already making an assumption. You're already making an assumption. So if you're given two equally qualified candidates, consider giving the opportunity to someone who may not have had that opportunity in the past, right? So the flawed thinking comes when you're already assuming, well, I'm going to accept I can tell you, I would be very insulted, and I'm sure you would be as well, to think that someone took us because of that. That's not the reason. It's because of our hard work. And and I can say that as a Latina, but I can tell you there have been different situations where, and and, and I, I mean, it can be in a hospital setting that a com and as a Latina, especially so a female Latina. So there's two different, two different yep. things, you know, hearing comments that are just not appropriate and having the fortitude to a either stand up to it or say, I'm not going to listen to this because it's not appropriate. Right. So in the past, I probably would have backed down. I'm definitely getting older now and I'm not tolerating that because I feel like we are. In a, and I can't say it's happened very recently, but it has happened in the past. I'm in a situation and I'm I'm constantly trying to um encourage young physicians, what you know, regardless of who they are, that you need, you know, you need to have your own self-confidence. And if something's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter. And you should be able to speak up about it. So if I'm talking to a medical student, I'm talking to a resident or a fellow in training, I need to also be a role model for the people that I'm, you know, I'm training. Um, so if someone says something, whether it's about a female or about a Latino, I am going to say, let's stop because that is, that is just wrong period. And, and there's no mincing words to me. There's, there's no need to do that. But I think, um, it's, it's just important to know that everything that we do is also being seen and may actually be a role modeling for someone else. So, and I think that's why maybe I have, I have also changed perhaps 20 years ago, someone could have spoken very um, negatively about a female, about a female physician that doesn't happen in front of me anymore because I don't tolerate that. And, and no one should tolerate that. Um, I really don't feel that I've, I've been discriminated against. I grew up in the Northeast in Connecticut um, I was very fortunate. I had a very supportive 
um, upbringing. I was a minority. There were very few, even in my own schools, there were very few Latinos. Um, and we stuck together, but I can't say I, I ever felt now, could it have happened without me knowing a hundred percent? And I think the important thing is just knowing, you know, my work has gotten me to where I am, which is why I go back to flawed thinking is just flawed thinking that we need to give people opportunities and patients. Certainly patient care does benefit when someone either speaks the same language or looks like the patient. And there's, there's no question about that. So I think just keeping that um, in mind. And as a fellowship training program director, we've, I've been blessed by so many amazing, and they've been Latina, you know, females, um, who have gone through training in allergy immunology. And I'm blessed, I'm blessed by all my fellows, but I think it's, it's, you know, another example of when you're given an opportunity and then for the young people is embrace the opportunity that you're given and make the most that you can out of it. The same way that my fellow Dr. Lydette, you know, took that, that I feel a very important quality improvement project and we're going to make a difference with it. I mean, those are the opportunities that when you're given that getting involved early, getting involved with organizations, the immune deficiency foundation, I got involved in with very early in my career and whether it's the American Academy of Pediatrics or whatever, you know, organization, um, clinical immunology society, I think those are, that's where we can make the biggest impact. So I encourage that as well. That is wonderful. You're, you're such a role model, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. And I just appreciate, don't frown. You all can't see her I on try. the podcast. She's, she's frowning, try. but she is. She doesn't want to embrace that. But you really are. And I, I appreciate your, your honesty and transparency. We have similar journeys and listening to you share how as you've gotten older, you've become less tolerant of the inappropriate comments and the micro aggressions that are never micro so um, I have a very similar journey as well. And I just appreciate um, all that you do and, and what you represent. And so that's that's awesome. Well, as we close, I'd love to hear from you. If, if there is a hospital administrator listening or maybe um, someone in charge of a patient advocacy organization or a physician or a budding physician, what, what is one thing that we can do in healthcare like today? to begin to address health and healthcare disparities in primary immunodeficiency? I really think that we need to start early with exposure. And I, I mean, early, um, get, getting even into the elementary schools or the middle schools and talking to children just about in general, about, about their health, about their immune health. And, you know, never underestimate what a young child can take from what you share with them. I think number one, you're exposing them to something that will help them lifelong, hopefully. But number two, maybe they thought, I can't be a I can't be a physician. I can't get into the healthcare field. You're opening a door. So, you know, things like STEM and 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 those those are STEAM, those are really important programs. Um, exposing children young to science and technology getting in there and talking about their immune health, whether, and, and anybody can really do that. Organizations can certainly get involved and partner with schools to do that in the high schools as well. And then as they move through college, they need exposure. If we don't expose, you know, if, if you have no exposures then you won't even know that that opportunity is there and you may not believe that you can do it because not everyone has the support that I wish everybody had, right? Because 
whoever puts their mind to whatever that is, they can make a difference. So I, I would really just encourage early exposure to, um, and we can start with immune health, but you know, then you can expand it to just increasing education in general about, you know, how our patients with inborn errors of immunity or primary immunodeficiency present because that will make a difference. And once we're able to diagnose earlier, obviously the outcomes will be better. And, and that's, that's important. I love that. And then lastly, what is one thing that a minoritized patient with PI or can do today to receive better care in light of all of the things that we've discussed, all of the barriers, the challenges, if you could give one piece of advice to uh, a Latino patient or African-American patient who is struggling to receive appropriate care, what would that be? I think the important thing is to find someone they can trust, right? So I didn't say this earlier, but certainly in our culture, um, you know, church leaders and, and are important. So going to someone they trust to help them find that um, either clinic or office or medical provider who can help them. Because when you're struggling and you don't have the information, if you're involved in um, a church, and we know that that is important for the Latino, for many Latinos, um, that's, that would be one way. You know, another way could be when you go to the pharmacy, we all go to the pharmacy when we're sick, speaking to the pharmacist and saying, look, this is what's happening. And the pharmacist really can partner and say, you need to see someone for X, Y, and Z, because to use a medicine, but not, you know, get to the root of the problem, we're just putting a bandaid on. So those are the two things. And I think, you know, certainly everyone goes to the pharmacy when they're sick because they need to get medication for something, but at least speaking to someone there, and it might be a pharmacy tech can make a big difference as well. And just encouraging them because once you have the trust, especially if you're going to the same pharmacy, once you trust someone, then you'll trust their recommendation. And if they tell you, go see, you know, Dr. Rochester can help you. They'll, they'll do that. It's gaining the trust, which is the hard piece. But once we have it, you know, cherishing that and knowing I can make a difference and not losing it, helping maintain that trust and find the best healthcare because we're all, you know, we all deserve that. At the end of the day, that's what we all deserve. Well, I think that is an amazing place to end this interview. It has been a pleasure as always speaking with you, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the work that you're doing um, clinically as well as research. And just thank you for, again, the role model that you are. Um, and I'm just really excited about the work that you're doing. I can't wait to see the publication that's gonna result or publications that will result from your work and the ideas that you suggested at the end. I see many more projects in your future. So thanks again for being a guest on Bold Conversations. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I really do appreciate being able to talk about something that's so near and dear to my heart.